just because something is legal doesn't mean that it was a good idea and it doesn't mean that it was necessary. And nobody asks, is it necessary? And that's the way we teach police officers. Major David Hughes has been a police officer for over 30 years. He currently serves as the Chief of Professional Standards at the Newport News Sheriff's Office, a post he has had since 2013. He recently authored an opinion piece in the New York Times entitled, I'm a Black Police Officer, Here's How to Change the System. Major Hughes, welcome to The Well. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And uh, to remind our listeners, this is a between-season segment we call What Are You Doing?, in which we call various creative people to see how they've been staying creative during the current lockdown. And Major Hughes, I have to say, your piece in the New York Times was both well-written and a refreshing perspective. Well, thank you very much. And we're going to get into your op-ed in a moment, but I wondered if you could help us to get to know you a little more first. Could you tell us where you're from and maybe a little bit about your childhood? Okay. Well, I was uh, born and raised in Norfolk, Virginia, same general area as Newport News, the Hampton Roads, Virginia area. Um, I had a part-time job in a grocery store while I was in high school, and there were police officers that worked in there in security. And um, it's probably the first time in my life I ever really had the opportunity to meet and talk with a police officer that was, you know, not professional. I didn't have a lot of interacting with police anyway, but uh, I kind of got to know them as people. And um, the, the couple that I, I met, I thought they were really nice. And that was probably the first indication that I think that I would have uh, gone into policing. And probably the second thing that, that really stuck with me when during my senior year of high school, there was a job fair or career day or whatever you want to call it. And there was a police officer that was there. And I had seen him before, but I didn't know him. And there were some kids that were in there at the career day. They were kind of challenging him on policing and, you know, just the, I guess, the overall attitude against police. And he said something that was very, it stuck with me. It, it, it meant a lot to me. And he says, well, if you're going to complain about it, he says, you have the opportunity to do something to make it better. And he says that that's why he joined policing, because he wanted to make it better. And he kind of challenged all of us in the room to make it better. And I didn't think too much about it at that time. But once I joined the police department, I, I always remember those words. And I, I, like I said, even now, you know, 30 some years later, I still remember that. But uh, right after high school, I started college. I really uh, was not really motivated. And uh, so I kind of didn't do well. I, I was having a little bit more fun than I was studying. And uh, I know a little so, something about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You talk about uh, the police academy a bit in your in your op-ed. Um, I believe it's currently a six-month program. Yes, it's about six months. Um, it, it kind of varies depending on the academy that you go to, but overall, it's uh, it's about an average of six six months, maybe twenty six weeks. 27 weeks, depending on where you are in the, in the state. I've, I've heard tell that uh, the saying is, you know, you, you get trained twice as a police officer. You get trained at the academy, <laughs> and then you get your real training on the street. Is that, is that true? 
That is very true. Uh, and I think anybody that's a policeman uh, probably have heard the saying, you know, as soon as you get out, uh, particularly your training officer, they're going to tell you, forget everything that you've learned in the academy. Uh, matter of fact, when you are in the academy, they probably will tell you, they'll probably warn you, hey, this is what you're going to hear. Don't pay any attention to it. Do what we tell you to do. And in your op-ed, um, you described a, a troubling moment that happened your first day on patrol. Could you share that story with our listeners? Sure. And just a little bit of a background, the uh, police department at that time, I think, was probably about 8% black. Um, and it was a 800-man department. So really, you're looking at less than uh, 80 probably closer to about 60 uh, black officers on the department. And my first night showing up, I show up, uh, we go to roll call. And when I'm in roll call, I'm the only black officer. And not only am I the only black officer, I'm the youngest person that's there too. I think everybody there probably was at least uh, eight to 10 years older than I was. Um, So we go through roll call, I get my assignment, I go with my training officer, and we go out in the car, and he gives me his expectations, which were not unreasonable. And as he's pulling off, he goes, oh, by the way, and he didn't use the N-word. I mean, he actually used the N-word. He didn't say N-word, but he says, you know, if I call somebody the N-word tonight, I don't want you to be offended by it. I'm not directing it at you. I'm directing it at them. And Uh, You know, I started to ask him why he would even use the word, but I kind of came to the realization that everybody in the room, it's the first time I'd seen anybody, you know, who would I complain to? Uh, My sergeant at the time actually retired in 1989 with 42 years of service which means he joined the police department in 1947. So, you know, all this is kind of going through my mind and I'm going, you know, I don't think that I would have anybody to really complain about this to. So I kept my mouth shut, didn't say anything. And um, I just waited to hear it all night. And I actually didn't. He did not mistreat anybody or, or, you know, say anything out of the way to anybody. But it kind of told me where I stood with at least him. And I said that I was going to have to try to teach myself because I wasn't sure that I was going to get the proper instruction from him. And um, I didn't mention it in the article, but when I left that next morning, um, because this was night shift, we started at uh, 11 o'clock at night and we got off 7 a.m. When I was leaving the station, I just happened to run into uh, an older black officer, and I had never seen him before. And he uh, introduced himself to me, and he says, uh, he asked me a question, you know, how, when did I start, how long had been there, and I told him last night was my first night. And he gave me his phone number, he asked who my training officer was, he asked who my sergeant was, and he goes, if you have any issues, you give me a call. And I think at the time, just because of the way things were, the black officers that were on that on the department, we really it was a really tight knit group. 
So that kind of helped me to be able to survive. And I was able to talk to folks like that about, you know, the best way to, to deal with that situation and any other situation that came up. In what other ways did you see racism manifest itself in the police force? Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, there were a lot of... Uh, a lot of various incidents. Um, you know, there were there was always comments. There were things that were always said. Um, I can tell you, and I actually started out in Norfolk Police Department. I work for the Newport News Sheriff's Office now, but this was Norfolk Police Department. At one point in time, uh, probably between 1989 and 1991, there were three black officers who all were arrested and falsely charged with a crime by their same department. And two of them, the charges were dismissed when they went to court, and they eventually got their jobs back. Uh, one was actually convicted and had, had his conviction overturned on appeal, and he eventually got his job back. Um, but these were officers that were very outspoken against anything that they perceived as being an injustice. And not that everybody didn't do that, but it was as if every opportunity was made to get rid of anybody that would uh, speak out against the system. So I was um, selected to be a detective. And um, I had spoken to the uh, captain of, uh, and I was going to be a narcotics detective. I had spoken to the captain. Uh, I was actually given the date and when I was going to get transferred, when I was going to go. And I was ready to go. And that date came, it passed, and the transfer was an issue. And I asked about it, and I was just kind of told, oh, it's coming. And I waited for a period of probably about four or five months. And I really didn't know what happened. And I finally, I get transferred. And when I get transferred, um, uh, maybe six or seven months later, I found out exactly what happened. Um, a detective that was down there accused me of selling drugs. And I, it was something I had never done in my life. And I, I was just, you know, kind of floored by it, but I wasn't completely surprised because it had happened to other folks. Uh, matter of fact, the current police chief in Norfolk, Virginia, uh, was an individual that had happened to around the same time that it happened to me. Uh, he managed to stay with the department, and, and like I said, right now he is the chief of police in Norfolk. I listened to an interview recently with Ronald L. Davis, who's a former police chief. He was later appointed to the Justice Department by President Obama. He described his early days in the force as a, a kind of an identity lesson. He said that as soon as he got into the police force, he was immediately told, you're not black, you're blue. You're a police officer. You just happen to be a black man. And he said it took him a good part of his career to start pushing back against that when he realized, no, I'm, I'm a black man who happens to be a police officer. Does any of that resonate with your own experience? Yes, it does. That's uh, actually a very common saying. And I still hear that being used today. It sets the tone for an individual to kind of go along with the status quo. Um, you know, by telling somebody you're one of us, you know, um, it doesn't matter. You need to stick with us no matter what we do. So as a result, 
I say that there are occasions when if you only consider yourself as part of this group, part of this subculture of being a police officer, you turn your own identity off. And it doesn't make any difference as to whether or not everybody else is right, are they wrong, are they human, are they black, are they white. It's you are a police officer, you're different than everybody else, and you need to go along with the subculture. You need to go along with this culture. And again, that's, it's a very strong subculture. If you're accepted as a police officer, and once you're accepted, you're pretty much accepted throughout the country. I, I have, um, throughout my career, I've had the opportunity to be an assessor in different uh, departments for promotional exams, and I've met police officers from all over the country, and it's almost as if you have this brotherhood. And this is what you would see, or that you would expect, pretty much like from Hollywood, when you hear people talk about the thin blue line. And that is an allusion to that. You are blue, you're not black, you're not white. You, you come with us, you stick with us. And to me, that's what that means. Individually, I had to, I think most policemen will have to fight against because it's very easy for that to become your identity. And that's the problem with it. It becomes your identity. You're a police officer first before you're anything else. And you, you start to think that any criticism of law enforcement, any criticism of police means they don't support us. Uh, I think you can be critical of police and yet have support for law enforcement. I've had a, uh, uh, I have a friend in the, was in New York City police officer and what that really resonated when you said you know turn off your own identity because I've heard him say he's really struggling I mean he's active now and he really struggles with of course he's struggling now it's a lot of pressure right now uh, and I th with the way he puts it the th what he hears what he says and what his fellow officers say is that when something when something goes badly for the police they say that could have been me that could have been me. Like when you weren't, if you're not there to have experienced the chaos of an arrest that goes bad, and it's that sort of, you know, I I'm not there, but it could have been me. There's a sort of group think to it, sort of a suspension of individual judgment, because if my friend did it, I could have done it too. Who knows what I would have done in that situation? I think you're absolutely right. Uh, just like I just mentioned, it's very common right now for police promotions for departments to bring in police officers at different ranks to assess those that are going up for promotion and it's called an assessment center and i've done that throughout the country and i have found that that is the hardest thing for police officers to do to be critical of other police officers um, even during the promotional process, when folks are going up for sergeant or lieutenant, I have noticed that when they're exercises and they have to point out mistakes or things that officers may have, ha may have done that were wrong, it's very difficult. You will hear officers come in and say, well, I wasn't there, so I don't know. I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna make a judgment call because I wasn't there. And I, 
honestly believe that that is a problem that we have within our profession. You know, my current job, I'm in charge of professional standards, which some agencies call it professional standards, some agencies call it internal affairs, but we're the ones that uh, look at wrongdoing, misconduct, and we have to call it just that. And a lot of police officers have problems doing that. Because again, um, they look at it as if you're being critical, then you know, you're not standing with us. You're not supporting us. In your article, you also describe some of the incredible things that you've seen uh, policing accomplish that most, most people probably aren't aware of. Can you tell me a bit about that? Uh, I, I can. I will tell you, I have seen policemen do everything from buying meals for kids, uh, spending money f- to help victims of domestic violence. Uh, you know, I can think of just certain ones just right off the top of my head. I, I remember uh, one winter, I actually got a call because there was supposed to be somebody in a vacant house. And I go to the vacant house, and when I get there, uh, I find that there was a woman who was a victim of domestic violence. Um, She had left her husband, and she had a three-year-old and a baby that was weeks old. And when she left, she didn't have anywhere to go. And she was, she just went and stayed in this abandoned house. And it it was cold. It was in the middle of the winter. And immediately, uh, not only did, you know, I do something for her, but it was like every policeman that was on on duty, they all took up money. They bought diapers. They bought food. They put this lady in a hotel until she could get services from social services. And they eventually... Uh, took up a collection and sent her home to where her family was, which was out of state. And, you know, I've seen policemen donate their time. They go, like I mentioned in the article, there was a vacant lot that they went, cleaned up, and there was a company that an officer got to donate equipment, and they built a playground there for the kids in the neighborhood. So, I see the good side of policing, which is why I I say exactly what I say. You can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Policing is a necessary function of a civilized society. Police officers do great things. And even though I would be critical of a police officer if I thought that they were wrong, I feel that they have to be given credit for the things that they do right as well. You know, and I know it's a cliche, and I know a lot of people may not agree with it, but I also think that there's more great things that are done than problematic things. I will be the first to tell you, this profession is not the same profession that I joined in 1987. It has improved. Um, Now, there's still problems, and there's still things that need to be corrected, but it has improved, and I think that there can be improvement in the future, and I think it can be corrected in the future. You said you kind of slid into it, you kind of fell into mm-hmm. uh, being an officer, but uh, you also said you had some early uh, thoughts about that guy that came to, but the officer that came to you on career day and said that, you know, if you want to change it, then, you know, 
join up and help. Uh, how prevalent is that? Have you, do, you, do you hear that a lot uh, amongst other officers that had a similar kind of uh, motivation for joining? I have heard that. Um, it, it's, I don't think it's uncommon. Uh, I've heard a lot of people who uh, have said similar things. Um, I also will tell you I have met people who have said that they were inspired uh, by a program that used to be around in the uh, 70s and 80s, which was called Officer Friendly. And I think this was like a precursor to D.A.R.E. And I remember Officer Friendly when I was in school. And I've heard a lot of folks that, you know, particularly my age, have said that they were kind of inspired by the Officer Friendly program to go into policing. Do you think we could use something like that again? Or is there society too cynical for that now or the police officers in the school now they serve a different function than like the officer friendly program uh i think what i see in the school now there's a little bit more enforcement and they're spending uh, a little bit more time dealing with issues um but i would just love to see a program where folks can kind of come in and it's an exploratory thing you get to see a police officer that is at ease, not doing some type of enforcement activities, not dealing with gang members in a high school, or not dealing with folks that are cutting classes, but just, you know, just a, a, an interaction. So what is it that you want people to understand uh, about modern problems in policing? What, what, what are the political pundits not seeing or saying that people need to know about? My opinion is that the problems that we face in law enforcement, while they're complex, I think a lot of the solutions are the things that are brought up, are things that, are, that could be considered superficial. Where we start at is with who we hire to be a police officer. Um, now, as I said in my article, I really believe that every police officer should have a four-year degree before they're hired. It gives you a foundation. There is so much more to police work in 2020 than there's ever been probably in the history of policing in, in America. Police officers, correctional officers are the only entities in the criminal justice system where it's not required to go in with a college degree. They're making judgments of law. They're making judgments based on uh, a person's demeanor when these people are dealing with mental illness. They're dealing with a lot of different situations where the foundation of a four-year degree is almost necessary to be able to function. That four-year degree serves as a, like I said, a foundation. Then after that four-year degree, time in a police academy can serve as a practice as um, similar to what a student teacher would do. You spent six months, you're being trained, you're being trained on specifics, on practical matters. And after that, you have your time in field training when you're doing on-the-job training. That is a better preparation for dealing with the things that you have to deal with as a police officer than just saying, I'm gonna take somebody, 
I'm going to give them six months of training. I'm going to put them with a training officer and we're going to go forward. Another thing that I would say is that the training that we get is pretty much offered by police officers. If you've ever read Colin Powell's leadership primers, and one of them he talks about experts, these are folks that would be trainers at the academy, because they don't have outside influences, outside eyes, they don't look from the outside in, they're what's always been inside. Colin Powell calls them inbred. And that's really kind of what happens with policing. In the police academy, and I guarantee if you went to any police academy in the country, you would hear some of the same phrases that are being uh, repeated. One of the things that you'll hear in probably any police academy is you'll hear the phrase, I'd rather be judged by 12 than carried by six. And that's just a reference to you'd rather go to court, answer in court in front of a jury for whatever your actions are, as opposed to being killed. The problem with that is now you have just reduced everything to just that one equation. I'd rather be carried by 12. I mean, I'd rather be judged by 12 than carried by six. So that's how you go about your day looking at a situation. Either I'm going to come out of this alive and have to explain it, or I'm going to be dead. And I think that that's the wrong, that's the wrong way to go about doing your job. My personal opinion, when you have any use of force that takes place and someone has lost their life, the very first thing that is always looked at is whether or not the actions were legal. But just because something is legal doesn't mean that it was a good idea and it doesn't mean that it was necessary. And nobody asks, is it necessary? Was it necessary? And that's the way we teach police officers. And that's why I said I think it's important to have that college education to give a person a solid foundation, to teach them critical thinking skills, to give them the opportunity to be able to look at things from a different perspective. And myself, I did it. I I arrested a guy right after a murder. He stabbed a guy. He still had the knife in his hand. And I didn't even have to pull my gun out. He did exactly what I told him to do. Now, who knows because of the way things are. You know, he was holding a knife in his hand. You know, had I pulled my gun out, had I shot him, could could it have been justified? Could it have been legal? It probably could. But the fact that I'm here and I was able to arrest him without struggling, without fighting with him, means it wasn't necessary to do that. And that's something that I think everybody needs to learn. And it's a fine line because you don't want anybody to get hurt. But at the same time, you have to be able to understand different perspectives, different cultures, different groups, and how things happen and how things occur and why things occur. And that is what I think a college education does for, for, for anybody that's coming into this line of work. It seems like the thorniest problem is this us and them mentality that has taken over policing 
and to be empathetic, I, I, I can understand it, you know, as a dangerous job. But what, what, what accounts for that? Where did that start? I mean, the, this sort of, you know, like, as you said, you know, judged by 12 rather than carried by six. It's, it's a binary option. And when you, when you get into that binary kind of thinking, what, how else are you going to see things other than it's us and them, which is kind of the opposite of how this whole deal is supposed to, to work. It's, it's, it should be leadership and service. And, but it's, I, I, that's, that's the part that worries me the most and the part that seems the most intractable because it's not just in policing. It's, I think it's an American culture yeah. thing. It's in business. It's everywhere you go in this culture. It's just that with the police, it's it's in policing. It's it's a starker contrast where the consequences are are writ much large, and and, and sometimes more lethally than it is, you know, sort of the more garden variety version of this us and them that permeates our society. I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I think that's what I really was talking about in the article when I talked about having a connection to the community. That is probably the most important thing you can do is have that connection to the community. And it's a little bit different between having a connection and knowing folks in the community. You know, it's it's really common if you're listening to a police radio or if you are listening to calls for service and an individual's name come out, uh, you know, it's, it's really common when you hear officers say, hey, I'm familiar with that guy, I'll respond over there. That's That's a really common thing. That does not mean that they have a connection with that individual. It just means they've got that a business relationship with them. Hey, I've dealt with them before. I, I know, you know, this is what's going on. I think it's really important when you care about the neighborhood, when you care about the community. Now, I did mention this in the article, and I really didn't mention this when you asked about some of the other things that were racist, but the Norfolk Police Department used to do something. Uh, my guess is that it was intended to be detrimental to black officers, but I think it had the opposite effect. Between the years of probably about 1965 to probably about 1995, if you joined the Norfolk Police Department and you actually were born and raised in the city of Norfolk, if you grew up in the city of Norfolk, they would assign you to the neighborhood you grew up in. That would be where you would work. Any white, any, all of the white officers that grew up in Norfolk, I don't ever remember that happening, but only black officers. And I think the idea was, we're going to put this person out here with their friends with the folks that they grew up with and now they have to go out here and they have to make a choice between them and the police department and it's going to be a tough choice and if they are not successful we're going to get rid of them. I think that was the idea but what it had the effect of doing was you put folks into neighborhoods that they really cared about. You know I the very first beat that I worked was the neighborhood I grew up in. So my friend's parents, the older folks in the neighborhood, they were out there. So if somebody did something in that neighborhood, I really wanted to help. I really wanted that, you know, the older folks, the folks that I watched as I grew up, I really wanted it to be a nice neighborhood for them. I really wanted things to be 
good for them. So it created a different attitude in me. There's no way I would have gone and I would have done something other than give the best service that I could. Because these are people that I'd seen all my life. But that reinforces in me the attitude that it's about your connection to the community. Now, you don't have to have grow up in a, in a community to be connected to it. But we have to find a way as a profession to get folks connected to the communities that they serve. And that connection is going to change the way that they see folks. It's going to change that binary option. It's not just us and them because I am part of the community. It's not, you know, them, they. It is we, us, ours. And that was something that you really did not see in the video with Derek Chauvin. There is no way that he could have had a connection to the community, regardless of what he felt about George Floyd while he was kneeling on him. There is no way he could have had a connection to the community when you have citizens that are standing around pointing out to you what's going on. That was his clue. That was his opportunity to stop and to do something different. But not only did he display an attitude where he didn't care what was going on with Mr. Floyd, he didn't care about what those citizens were saying. And that is what you see in the look and the attitude that he displayed in the, in the eight minutes of that video. And that has been the one thing that I've looked at. And it was just, it's so obvious. There was no connection to the community on this part. I have a, a sort of a story that will lead into a question about defunding and refunding, as you put it. Um, I have a, yeah, another uh, NYPD friend who grew up in a, you know, one of the boroughs. And he joined because he wanted to serve his community. And he, had, and he went in all fresh-faced and optimistic and probably naive. And he wanted, he had some ideas for some programs, something he wanted to do to get the community and the police a little, you know, a little chummier. And his, um, his reward for that was to be assigned to the furthest precinct they could put him in. And it was called Highway Therapy which I think is kind of a funny term. So to give him time, his, his drive far away from home every day, give him time to think about whether or not that was such a good idea. But that's terrible. That is, and, and, and that's, and that's, and I think that leads into this defund and refund issue. Because if you feel like there's some people coming in to the, the force that do want to change things for the better, developing a relationship with the community, and then you have, I don't know what you want to call using your words, maybe the sort of the more inbred old guard who doesn't want to change things, who are, for whatever reason, uh, cynical, set in their ways, I don't know. Um, you can't get past them. They're going to kneecap any upstart movement to kind of, uh, within the force, to, to change things for the better. Is that the kind of thing that would... Uh, that this defund and refund thing would help to sort of disrupt the chain of command for a little while, kind of, kind of, kind of scatter it and then reassemble it again into another structure. You know, that's that's interesting. I think that's more or less what you have to do. You know, I think that we have to look at things from the perspective of what we have done 
for the last 50, 60 years is what has brought us to this point. So even though we may have accomplished a mission, I don't think that we accomplished the mission with effectiveness. So what we have to do is just like you said, you have to kind of look at what works and put things together, put things back together with the blocks that work and add in some of the other requirements. One of the things that I think that's really important to do to move forward is to be willing to try new things. And if it works, we need to be able to evaluate it. It's, you know, one of the things that I I mentioned in that article was extending the probationary period for a police officer. Right now, typically throughout the country, the probationary period is one year. And it may vary, but basically one year once you graduate the academy. One year is not enough to really evaluate how well a person is going to perform unsupervised. A lot of the things that a policeman is going to do is there's not going to be any immediate supervision there. So expanding that probationary period, giving the officers that have proven themselves a little bit of autonomy to be able to do certain things in the community. If you think about ideas of policing back in the 20s and 30s, particularly if you look into big cities like New York and Boston, you got the idea of a policeman walking the beat, knowing everybody that's around, knowing who owns shops, knowing the folks that are out there. And I think, just like you said, there are officers who may have the ability to do that, and they're not necessarily given it. And I think, again, as a profession, we're really quick to shut them down and say they don't know what they're talking about. And hey, I'm 55 years old. I don't know any longer the way a 28-year-old or a 30-year-old thinks. Even though I would like to think that I'm still young at heart, I'm, I don't think the same way that they do. So these guys that are coming on, we need to give them the opportunity to be able to fit in with their generation. We need to be able to allow them to say, hey, these are some of the things that work, and this is what we want to do. And, and I think it's really important that we do that. And I think that's where the education comes in again, is it gives you, I mean, one thing education trains you to do is, uh, is, is question authority and question the, the, the status quo and look for alternatives, creative alternatives, rather than say, look, this is the way, it's, this is the way it is, this is the way it's done, this is the way you're going to. Exactly. And, you know, and I think that's one of the things that that uh, that we get into. Um, and if you look at, and I know a lot of folks are not going to like this, <laughs> police unions uh, are, are are really, you know, the defenders of the uh, of the, the status quo. They're the old guard. They're the ones that said, "You come in here, you you do twelve months, and then you join the union." And this is what we're going to do for you. Don't worry about anything else. You do what we tell you to do. And we're going to negotiate your contract. And that's it. When I was at a rank that I could be a union member, I was a member of a union. I don't have any animosity toward any of the police unions. But again, we have to be able to 
as a profession to say when we're wrong and when we're right. And I think policing is one of the few that we're really not vocal about doing it. When I saw the video of the man in Buffalo, New York, a 75-year-old protester, and I see a police union afterwards that not only stood up for the action, but encouraged everybody to leave the team. I look at that and I say, well, you are not giving the citizens of Buffalo exactly what they need. First of all, the actions themselves, you know, not the fact that the man fell, but the fact that you did nothing to assist him. And then you try to convince 57 people that's on a crowd management team. Well, you're not going to do those ancillary duties anymore. We're going to stop doing that because you had something to to say about the way we did our job. That is not serving the citizens well. That's not serving the profession well. And that's just an example of, of, like I said, we have to be able to be critical of our own, point out when things aren't right, and be able to work to correct it. I'll take it a step further. Do you do you think that police should actually be required to live in the communities that they serve? My short answer would be yes, at least for a certain amount of time. Um, it, it's not really popular. It was, it's never been popular with uh, a police union. And in some places, they actually have laws against it. You know, my personal opinion, you know, at least for you know, your first years on the job that you should be required to live in the city. And if you achieve a certain rank, you should be required to live in the city. Because like I said, it gives you a connection. And and I will say this, the best folks to decide how they want their police department to look should be the community. So Maybe my city feels that, hey, you, sh- you have to live here to be a police officer here. So we require that. It should be an option that we have. It may not work the same in a rural location, or it may not work the same someplace else just because of the population. And, and I would understand that. But I think it's really important that the community has a say-so in it. I, uh, I, I promised my wife I'd cook dinner tonight so I have to go at some point but <laughs> before I do that uh, is there any anything we haven't touched on that you'd you you'd like to, to add well you know I, I would just say you know reflecting back over my career you know I'm proud of my career as a police officer and I believe that a lot of the issues that are facing policing in this country and just like you you mentioned earlier I think you know we're very bifurcated along a lot of different lines, not just in policing. I think these issues can be faced, but the only way to fix it is to do exactly what we're doing here, to have a conversation, a sensible conversation where it's, you know, there's give and take. You know, somebody else may have a different opinion of things. They may have a different outlook on things, which is one of the reasons that I mentioned the racism, because I hear all the time, oh, there's no no racism in policing. And you know, I experienced it. So I think we have to be willing to have a conversation. We have to be willing to sit down and talk. You know, 
There are over 330 million Americans. And in my opinion, this is the best country in the world. We have smart people. We should be able to figure this out. We should be able to figure out how to keep our civilization going. And this is the first step. You sit down and you have the conversation. Well, Major Hughes, thank you for your op-ed. Thank you for joining us today. And thank you for the work you continue to do for your community. Thank you. And thank you for having me. Produced, recorded, and edited by Brandon Edgens and me, Anson Mount. Theme music by Jonathan Myberg. Reverend Freakchild's version of Blind Lemon Jefferson's Seat of My Grave is Kept Clean is provided courtesy of KBOO in Portland under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. Special thanks to Major David Hughes of the Newport News Sheriff's Office. Have a great week, everyone. Hey,
Hey! 